Hi, Simon Andrews. I'm delighted to welcome you to Radio Fix. This is a new dimension of our weekly newsletter, Mobile Fix, the podcast where we go deeper on the subjects we cover in Fix. Today, I'm delighted to talk with an old friend of mine, Rory Sutherland, former colleague. We worked together 20 years ago. Really, no one's smart in the ad business. This is a director's cut. This is a full conversation we had. It's over an hour long, but I'm sure you'll find it worth sticking with because we cover so much ground and Rory's just so smart. Enjoy. Great. So I'm here with one of the top ad people in the world, but Rory Sutherland's gone beyond ads and is renowned thinker in behavioural economics with multi-million TED Talk views and talks all over the world. Um, we made a schlep down to Canterbury to talk with um, Rory about what's happening in this world and how the behavioural economics work he does, which is a small description of it, how that fits with advertising. So this is our uh, Mobile Fix podcast. I'm Simon Andrews and uh, Rory, welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. So most ad luminaries are defined by they've done a 30 second TV commercial or something like that. And yours are a bit different because we worked together 20 odd years ago at Ogilvy Direct. So you've come up through a different route into the advertising industry. Yeah, I still consider myself a copywriter at heart. And I still consider myself a direct marketer at heart as well. Okay. Um, But what had always occurred to me, and this was something very, very early on in my career, it was fairly obvious that direct marketers kind of knew more than they knew they knew. There was a lot of tacit knowledge there about human behaviour. For instance, I'll give you a classic thing which people under 40 will find baffling, but this is true. The phrase, for example, um, uh, please reply within uh, uh, 10 days. Right. That was at the bottom of every letter, that if you sent an offer to someone, you always made it time-restricted, or ostensibly so. To be honest, anybody who replied would have got the offer. But it was known that if you actually placed a certain sense of urgency behind an offer, you'd get a much higher response rate than if you said, feel free to take up this offer whenever you like. Now, that was an early behavioural insight from um, direct marketing. And there were lots of them, and good old direct marketing law taught direct copywriters quite a few of them. But we never fully codified it. And what was strange, I think, and this is, I suppose, the really weird thing, is that we had a media department and a targeting department, and we had a creative department. So there was the kind of what do you say department and the where do you say it and who do you say it to department. But my view was that there was always scope for a third department, which asked kind of wider questions. Uh, For instance... Um, how do you price it would be, an, would be a, a, a classic example. You know, in other words, would this be better if you actually priced it as four equal payments over four months? What do you compare the price to? What's your comparative set? Because we all knew this in direct marketing, OK? We all use those tricks like for less than a cost of a cup of coffee a yes. day. But those were good copywriting tricks which good direct marketing copywriters knew to use. But there was never wider discussion of those things, despite the fact that if you looked at the effect they had on results, you saw they were disproportionately important. Years later, I persuaded my father to get Sky. And bear in mind, if you'd grown up where all TV was free except for the licence fee, the idea of paying sort of 17 or £20 a month for extra channels yeah. seemed deeply weird. And my father was hugely resistant. And I said, look, I'll pay for it. No, 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 it's still too expensive, he said. I said, well, I don't mind paying. I mean, you know. And then I finally fell back on my old trick. I said, well, it's not really £20 a month, is it? It's 65p a day. 
words to that effect. He said, well, what difference does that make? And I said, well, you spend two pounds a day on newspapers. If you spend two pounds a day on newspapers, it's not that crazy spending 65p to get another 200 channels of television. And strangely, he went, oh, I see what you mean. So even something which economists would consider as absolutely stable as price, the perception of price can be dramatically changed by context. If you frame a cost versus another cost, uh, for example, you could make an expensive thing seem cheap. I always give the example in my talks of Nespresso, which if you had to buy it in a jar like Nescafe, for an equivalent volume of caffeine, you'd be paying something like £40 a jar. And you'd look at that in the shops <laughs> next to Nescafe. That's totally insane. I can't pay that. But of course, because it comes in a pod, and our frame of reference is Starbucks and Costa, rather than Nescafe, we don't feel we're being woefully extravagant uh, in popping a 40p Nespresso pod in the machine. I mean, I did an interesting calculation the other day, which fascinated me. I, I've always felt guilty buying expensive tea because it seems a bit of a needless indulgence. You know, here are the PG tips, which are sort of 2p a cup. Yes. And I'm buying this Yunnan oolong, whatever it is. And then I worked out, fascinating thing, if you make really expensive tea with tap water, it's cheaper than bottled water. Now, nobody feels guilty buying a bottle of Avian to take home on the train. So should we necessarily feel guilty buying, you know, monkey-picked Darjeeling second flush and making it with tap water? No, I don't think we should. And so it's very, very interesting that in every case, uh, context has this huge effect on behaviour. But there was a creative department, if you like, and there was a targeting department, but there wasn't a context department. Now, I wasn't suggesting for a second there should just be a context department. But it struck me that there were these variables in any piece of communication, how you presented a product, how you named a product, um, how you described the price, how you charged for it. Um, whether you should put the price down or even up, by the way, which had an enormous effect on the economic outcome, but which weren't being studied with anything like the same assiduousness as the headline on the poster or the targeting proposal. I think that's why I find it interesting because, you know, you can see now when you describe it like that, there's all these connections between what you've always done and what people like Claude Hopkins and did yeah. and, you know, Richard Taylor and Nudge. But you saw that. And a friend who used to work for GE, it's quite interesting, he was bonused on how much of his revenue came from products which have been launched in the last two years. And there also, you could have a third of your money coming from new products. The trolls have fresh new income streams. And you think about the advertising industry, your take on yes. this is the only new product I can think of in the past 20 or 30 years because they're still making okay I'm making something a 30 second commercial or an Instagram well, ad yeah, the same product it, the same. it's fantastic you say this because the the ad industry and the the creative agencies and media agencies particularly creative agencies still behave as though we're paid on commission we haven't been paid on commission for 25 years now someone should have said like the GE person look now we're paid by the hour Okay. The downside is we'll never get a huge check for doing not very much, i.e. running last yeah. year's advertising all over again, which was hugely lucrative when it happened. Okay. But the good news here is we're no longer confined to solving problems for people who have a media budget. Because the problem, obviously, about being paid on commission was the only people worth talking to were the kind of standard media budget holding clients at large advertisers. 
Who'd worked out they wanted to run advertising. Who'd worked out they wanted to run advertising in advance. Now we can actually broaden our remit and create a whole load of new offerings because my argument is for every person who's got a problem in a media budget, there are 100 people who've got a problem and no media budget. And quite often those problems, I'm not talking about purely technical problems, but if human psychology is involved in their problem, which most of the time yeah. kind of is, okay, then behavioural science combined with creativity, in other words, that should be the staple of what an agency does, which is human insight plus yeah. a creative response to those insights, actually has, a, you know, that if you think about it, you can't imagine management consultancy narrowing itself. You know, it doesn't just wait for people with a consultancy <laughs> budget to emerge. It infiltrates every part of the business. Well, I think I saw you... We have this self-limiting definition, which is um, one of the things that really upsets me about it is you can't really work with smaller firms. Now, maybe in 1970 that didn't matter, but smaller firms now mean f firms that might be very big in six years' time. And, you know, in the first five years of Google, the first five years of Amazon, you know, quite often with tech firms, advertising is the last thing they do. So what you might call the psychological part of the equation or the wider marketing part of the equation is the last part to engage. I think that's a really good point because one of the things I think, if you look at why agencies, you know, struggle because they don't get paid properly, as you say, they've never been paid for the value they create. If you think about, no. you know, Sterling Cooper and Don Draper and the Kodak Carousel, you know, they were getting paid handsomely for a great idea. And you talk about it as magic and alchemy in the book. And you also say um, that with your new business, you get people coming to ask questions they don't ask of agencies. So that's quite interesting that people with these problems don't see agencies as the way to go, but we'll see your nudge business as, you know, how do I solve this problem because there isn't a media budget for it. So we end up with clients who, you know, realistically, if you were behaving as I think most new business people do, which is essentially let's go down to Cannes and talk to a lot of people with big media budgets on the assumption that that's where we can add the most value, it strikes me as an entirely outdated assumption. Okay, first of all, you're talking to exactly the same people as every other bloody agency <laughs> in town. Secondly, you have this kind of self-limiting definition of what you're there to do, because communications is only part of creative solve problem solving. It's a very important part. It's probably the best part in which to cut your teeth. I wouldn't dispute that for a second. But um, what's fascinating is you, when you think about it, WPP doesn't really have an R&D budget. No. GE does. Okay. Now, here you have a company the size of WPP. What everybody seems to have spent the last 20 years doing is saying, how can we do exactly what we did before 3% more efficiently than we used to do it? Now, at some point, in any case, you run up against, you know, there's a limit to how efficient you can be in a business such as ours, to be absolutely honest. There's a huge amount of iteration involved. There's a huge amount of random serendipity involved. Um, the idea that you can somehow generate fantastic ideas and solutions through process I believe in I believe in checklists. I don't really believe in process. You know, I think you okay. should. You know, um, because process is what you do when you want to produce the same thing time yes. and time again. Replicable. And uh, and also if, if for a replicable product in a predictable world, process is great. There's a reason why evolution doesn't work that way, which is it has to deal with an unpredictable world, um, and it has to have the ability to do non-replicable things. It has to adapt. Now, isn't it weird that the entire ad industry 
has had this enormous pool of really special talent. And by the way, I mean, I've adored my time working there and the people I've worked with have been stimulating, fascinating, uh, truly remarkable. And no one said, who else can we sell this to? The assumption is that unless you already have a pre-existing large media budget, effectively, it's a bit like, as I said, an agency is a bit like having a general hospital, but you've got a sign over the door that says cosmetic surgery. <laughs> and it's a self-limiting belief. Because, I mean, it's also present, by the way, in ad agency people, in that they tend to think that if you solve a problem in a highly effective, imaginative, lucrative way, but you don't get an ad out of it, that you've somehow cheated. Well, I think in your new book, um, it's called Alchemy. Um, but you talk about this idea that yeah, agency people, people who have ideas, are alchemists. They turn lead into gold. Yeah. That feels like a pretty good descriptor of what advertising at its best can do. I love the fact you talked about the $300 million button, mm. where changing a button on a web page made a huge difference to actually conversion. I mean, that's a wonderful thing. Do Google it, because it's a wonderful story where uh, essentially asking people to register before they'd bought killed sales. Strangely, once people had bought, if you offer them the chance to register by simply adding a password, 95% um, of people, I think, went on to happily to register. Okay. Now, what's interesting is the amount of work you were asking them to do was very little. It was actually no different. Typing in your name and address when you think it's a data collection exercise feels like a really frustrating pain in the ass. Typing in your name and address for the delivery of the product you've just bought feels like a very Good necessary task. Yeah. So asking people to register, even though you were saving them the trouble of writing and typing in their name and address, by framing it as this is the delivery address for your new fridge versus please register at our site, the pain experienced in that behaviour is completely different. And I find there are so many cases where something which is identical in objective terms can be inordinately different in perceptual terms. That's why I call it alchemy, because you can take the same thing and make it dismal or fabulous. And I think that's such a strong point. You know, looking from the media point of view, we have this conversation, the best way to double the effect of your media spend, because you've done a really good job, it's almost there, yes. is actually halving the basket abandonment through the sort of thing you're talking yeah. about. But those two people don't get to talk and you don't connect those things up. So no. someone's struggling uh, uh, to make their media budget work harder <coughs> when they could be solving a different problem. And there may... <coughs> If you can't make the checkout process any easier, there may be a, a communication solution to it, by the way, which simply says, if you make people expect it to be difficult, they'll be less annoyed by it. So I, I, I always very interested in, your, in, you know, if you go to TripAdvisor and all the reviews say the food's great, but the service is terrible. When you get there, you're not particularly bothered by bad service because you've been led to expect it. Uh, there's an even more extreme case, which I, I was given, which is Wang Qi, the Chinese restaurant in yes. Chinatown, which made a brilliant living for 20 years out of being the rudest restaurant. Shouting at people. Shouting at people. If you ask for, if you ask for a knife and fork instead of chopsticks, you'd be <laughs> subject to a whole heap of abuse. And they basically tell you where to sit. They criticise your menu choices. But of course, depending on uh, what the human frame of mind is, uh, the same thing can be a huge disadvantage and a disaster or something of a benefit. Yes. And it always fascinates me how many great advertising end lines are effectively a piece of alchemy because what they do is they turn a weakness into a strength. And there's a great phrase, since we're in Kent at the moment, actually not far from Canterbury, uh, Chaucer uses it about 
14 times, I think, in the Canterbury Tales, which is to make a virtue of necessity. And what that is, is to take something which conventionally would be considered a bug and turn it into a feature. OK, now, the beautiful, most beautiful case probably of all time is we're number two, so we try harder, which is particularly if you remember the time at which that was produced. Yeah. We're number two in rent-a-cars, so we try harder. Now, at the time, being number two basically meant you weren't as good as the number one. You didn't have as many outlets. The chance that cars weren't available was higher. This was an America where big meant good, you know. Yeah. And we're number two in rental cars is a bad news story until you add four words, four alchemical words, so we try harder, whereby changing the story, you've turned something, a downside, into a plus. And, you know, if you think about it, reassuringly expensive for Stella Artois, uh, good things come to those who wait for Guinness. Um, um, fresh cream cake's naughty but nice. Uh, you either love it or you hate it. You know, they're all a case where you take something which is a negative in a completely rational economic world, those things would be either neutral or negative. And you, by, by changing the narrative, you suddenly turn them into a benefit. And you think that now you're, you, you, you know, you've been a great advocate for this space, you know all the big thinkers in this space and quote them and you know, talk at your event at Nudgestock. You know, do you see this sort of spreading into the rest of the industry or does it seem to be remarkably immune to this new thinking? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a growing business. I mean, it's worth saying that Draft, um, uh, FCB, uh, as I said, a few agencies, a couple in Chicago, a few in San Francisco, uh, and a few completely standalone agencies have started, who are starting to do work in this field. And I think it's really important. I mean, my own instinct is I like it to be, I like to be part of an ad agency because the whole creative setting, it provides, apart from that, it provides you with many opportunities to practice your craft. Yeah. Because it's not always easy. The one thing I do say that's difficult about this, if you think about it, is that... Uh, when you have a media budget, patently you need some creative work to fill the space and you also need to pay some media owners to transmit the message. OK, the problem with this is that which does make it difficult. It's very not difficult to add value. Very, very easy to add value. Extremely easy to find dangerous assumptions that people are making about human behaviour, which, if they're wrong, are very, very costly. But they simply seem logical. Um, but the one difficult thing is nobody's got a budget for solving a problem they didn't know they had. And that's that's the one area in which it helps to be part of a larger something else. I see. You talk about, you know, metrics and being measured against us and bad metrics lead to bad measurement, lead to bad behaviour. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I genuinely worry about business metrics because in some cases, I'm not even sure we should be using them at all. Now, if you think about what we tend to do when we decide to do some advertising. We say, OK, our, our strategy is X. The role of advertising within the strategy is to do Y. Therefore, we will design advertising that's explicitly designed to achieve Y, and we will evaluate its success exclusively on the basis of how well it achieves Y. Yeah. OK. Now, in a completely predictable, kind of deterministic, uh, instrumental world, where the future was knowable uh, and where everything of value was measurable and quantifiable. That's a reasonable approach. It's a reasonable approach in engineering, for example. Yeah. You know, we need to solve this problem with drag at the end of the tail fin. Therefore, we will evaluate solutions by how far they reduce that drag. 
that's, you know, it's a good way to do lots of things. If you look at advertising, I'd argue that there's a huge reason to advertise, which is simply that being famous will lead to lots of unpredictable outcomes and they're vastly more likely to be positive than negative, assuming you don't get involved in scandal or you don't get rumbled. So if you're an honest company producing a decent product, the reason to be famous is not because you know in, in advance how fame will benefit you or that you can ever measure it. It's simply that there's an enormous asymmetry going on there. So if you've got teenage kids, okay, I always use this example, and you say, why are you going out on Saturday night? The basic answer will be, I might get lucky. Okay? <laughs> yeah. And you'd say, well, how, how, now, how old are you? Have you done a cost-benefit analysis, right? You know, how do you plan to get lucky? Do you have a particular girl in mind? Or do you have a particular boy in mind? Or do you have a friendship group that you particularly want to inveigle your way into? And their answer, quite accurate, will be, I don't know. But what I do know is if I stay home, I won't get lucky. Now, I think... One way to approach advertising is simply in that way, which is that, okay, if you're famous, you're vastly more likely to be the recipient of positive good fortune than if you're obscure. People will bring you good ideas spontaneously. When your chief executive rings someone up or asks for a favour, they'll return the call. Uh, people will come and work for you for less money and you will get more talented people because they've heard of you. You know, in a B2B environment, trying to make advertising kind of quantifiable it's probably, you know, it's probably a particularly acute mistake, simply because you can't know in advance how fame will benefit you. What you can know to a reasonable degree of confidence is that the upside vastly outweighs the downside. But I get that, and I agree with that. But that's often used the argument to push the old way of doing things. Let's spend a lot of money on mass market media and don't worry about wastage. You know, is it being famous amongst the right people? back to your targeting point, or it's been generally famous, you know, and spend money on things which, you know, look like they're not the right people to talk to. I mean, to. in some cases, of course, I mean, I always found it very funny when my book came out because, you know, you could have sat down and had a really detailed report about, you know, detailed discussion about who do we promote it to. It's a book about behavioural yeah. science. It has particular relevance to marketers. It has a wider relevance to a business audience. And you could have... You know, sat down, and if someone had suggested, why don't you try and get on the Chris Evans breakfast show? I would say, <laughs> a ridiculous idea. On earth would Chris Evans yeah. want to interview someone? But because, essentially, the book was widely publicised, someone close to Chris Evans invited me onto the yeah. show. Chris liked the book and talked about it a lot. And bizarrely, for five days, I mean, this was extraordinary, OK, it was sort of number eight on Amazon, by which I mean wow. it was beating the highway code, which is compulsory. <laughs> okay, It was beating the hungry little caterpillar. You know, I, I think there was something like four cookery books and one novel. Uh, and then I can't remember what the other two books that were selling better were, but they were kind of the books you're never going to beat. Um, and the point about that was that fortune in a non-linear universe is often disproportionate. Yes. And maybe the argument is you publicise a book and you make a lot of noise about it, first of all, because uh, essentially you can't tell how you're going to get lucky in, in a non-linear world. You know, if I'm, I've talked to various people who are now billionaires who say, I was basically working out of a garage and then this local news item appeared on the TV about me and seven other... TV, 
you, you know that American yeah. thing where you get our local Fox affiliate, <laughs> you know, Channel 5, you know, whatever it is. You know, I always watch that. I love those yeah. channels in the morning. And literally, this guy, actually, one of them was the guy who, who runs Box.com, and he was selling toilet paper out of his garage until some local news outlet thought the story was cute, and it sort of just sp- spread. Uh, now, the, you can't... You can't engineer those things in advance. All you can do is maximise the chances that they may happen. But didn't you earn the right or the chance for fame and being lucky by writing a really good book? And if you've got a great piece of creative work, no, no, no. the ad gets you know, famous through the look from there. If you've got a poor piece of creative work, no matter what your budget is, you don't get the same benefit. There's a quality uh, in there, maybe? Th- there's a problem, though, I think, in which that a lot of people who have a mechanistic mindset have suddenly stumbled onto... By the way, including myself. Now, let's be absolutely clear about this. Okay, I'm an enormous enthusiast for direct marketing. I could never understand why people spent so much money on advertising and so little on direct marketing when direct marketing was measurable. What I genuinely couldn't understand, what I still can't understand today, which is the strange behaviour of large companies, you go in and you say, this has got an ROI of five to one. And you go through all the maths and you can see that for every pound you spend, you are getting five back. Now, my father was a self-employed businessman. If you'd showed him anything with an ROI of five to one, he would have done a lot of it. And then you say, it's got an ROI of five to one, so I suggest we do some more of this. And they go, no, I've met my target or I've spent my budget for this year. Okay, so there's something really weird about about large corporate entities. GE, by the way, is a weird exception where you don't have a budget, do you? You have a target. Yeah, and, I think and how you make that target is kind of up to you. If that means spending an enormous amount of money to make the necessary profit, that's your call. I think Expedia don't have um, a budget, but if, if they're running a programmatic campaign and you look like someone they can sell a holiday to, they'll spend the money to reach you. If you don't look like the right sort of person, they won't spend they'll the stop. money. But interestingly, they you know it, that, that's interesting because the problem with having too much of an efficiency mentality. Uh, is that so, so, um, there are some strange things I can never understand this that people when you could prove that direct marketing worked their appetite for doing more of it never seemed to increase very much which is a really strange yes. thing um, and what they do is they do the same thing next year and they try and print the letter on cheaper paper Okay. instead of saying let's do more of it they go let's try and make this even more cost effective by making the communication cheaper and what would generally happen is by the third year the paper was so shitty <laughs> that um, nobody replied I mean but uh, the, 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 the problem with the efficiency mindset is that um, one there are very large businesses which really depend on scale that actually the breadth of your customer base yeah. is all, not every business I accept that okay I accept that you would be kind of silly, indiscriminately targeting all of Rolls-Royce's advertising. You should indiscriminately target some of Rolls-Royce's advertising, by the way, but to, to spend all your money indiscriminately would be ridiculous. OK, I accept that. OK. Um, however, we've got to be careful because then we don't actually... We've made this decision about optimising the efficiency of uh, targeting Weirdly, far less effort is put into optimising the efficiency of creative messages, which is a complete failure of the digital world in itself, which is that presumably it's much easier to establish a matrix for placement than it is a matrix for creative approaches. But my argument would be that actually creative experimentation probably pays off more. I think that you, it's my hot topic. Um, you see so few good online ads now. I used to collect bad ones, you know, but it's depressing. It's also Google, and Google have worked out that actually 
creative is up to 70% of the impact of their spend. Well, an interesting question is, did all those things for Brexit stroke Trump's election, did they work, really? The assumption is they worked because they used an extraordinary amount of data to target people to an incredible level of precision. It occurs to me that they may well have worked simply because they were testing lots of different creative messages and some of them were disproportionately powerful. I think so. so Boris Johnson is running 5,000 different ads on Facebook now, testing things out. So if it's an election, he's going to run 10 or 15 of those, you guess. So it's our ability to very quickly work out which ones are really worth backing and not from there. But it does come down to your metrics, what you're measuring against. If it's clicks, are you getting the right results from getting someone to click on it from there? And also, of course, um, how... Now, very interestingly, you mentioned that GE gave you a, an extra bonus if you were selling new things. Yeah. Uh, which is a very, very sensible weighting. Uh, it's worth remembering that there's an ad that persuades someone to stay in the Hilton rather than the Marriott. And there's the ad that persuades someone to stay at a Hilton rather than staying with friends. OK. Yes. Now, they both appear to be equally valuable to the Hilton group. But the second ad, by actually growing the market, is doing more work than the first. So first of all, how, you know, how do you measure the efficacy of an ad? I can produce a very efficient ad by walking into a pub with a cardboard thing and a crayon and writing drink beer on the cardboard and sticking it up behind the bar. And I can point out that lots of people who are exposed to that message drink beer. But a large part of that is because they're already in a pub. OK, they've come into the pub to drink beer. The sign may have some. I mean, it's probably, you know, the sign has some effect. But nonetheless, my claims that the sign is spectacularly effective aren't really true. So your book talks about the correlation between good words, ice cream sales and violence, missing out the fact that obviously the summer. The, 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 exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So my favourite example. So I spend too much time looking at Leeds United News on you know, websites as a pop up that turns up. So when you get a pop-up, you go to you click on the right top right corner to close it down. But it doesn't have a cross there. It says click here to go to our visit our site. And on the left hand side, there's a cross. a cross. So great. So on click through, that's probably working really well. well. But nobody in the history of the world has ever clicked on ad by mistake. Like, While I'm here, I'll put a bet on Saturday's game. Yeah. Someone's working to the wrong metrics. And no. so often and also, also of course, it's worth remembering that um, some element of the believability of an advertisement is conveyed by how much cost goes into it and also by how indiscriminately it's targeted. Yes. Because you can always pick off suckers and lie to them, OK? If you lie to a large crowd, someone's going to call you out. So messages that appear in a public space to a simultaneous indiscriminate audience may well evoke a sense of credibility in the viewer that is individually targeted at which might have cost 0.3p to deliver okay simply won't evoke because there's a there's costly signaling theory which we need to look at yeah. which is a concept that came out of biology which is the fact that it's the fact that somebody who was lying couldn't afford to do this okay it applies to flowers and yes. large petals. Yes. It applies to all... The, in other words, you know, a peacock that wasn't pretty fit couldn't carry this huge <laughs> tail on its back, OK? The fact that my advertising is, to some extent, a proof point, which is spending a lot of money up front promoting something only pays if you believe that something is going to be widely and repeatedly popular. In, now, if you have a product where, on the first use... Now, actually, very interesting case of that is Strand Cigarettes, which I think your dad smoked. Is that so right? I was sent to the shop when I was about whatever to mm. buy some cigarettes, Strand Cigarettes for my dad, and came back to the stop selling them. So I was like, 
what are you talking about? And no, no, honestly, the co-op says they've stopped selling them and is investigating and stopped selling them. And like 25 years later, I found this story. Yeah. That nobody, apart from my dad, was buying strand cigarettes because the line was... Um, you're never alone with a strand. You're never alone with a strand. Now, the interesting thing, I spoke to Jeremy Bullmore because he said, can you think of a case of advertising which has conspicuously failed? Now, by the way, I'm sure there are some cases, by yeah. the way, where you just, you know, you've got the tonality hopelessly wrong, something of that kind. But... And I said, well, you're never alone with a strand. Is the absolute textbook case of a failed advertising campaign. Now, hey, my dad thought it was brilliant advertising. There was a song. There was a kind of Sinatra lookalike. It was done by Ogilvy. So yes. I'm, I'm highly... It was actually Ogilvy's predecessor. I think it was um, probably Mather and Crowther who did it. Right. But I'm highly defensive because there was a guy who looked like Sinatra. There was a song which was actually released on a 45 single record, which went to number three. My dad always thought it was brilliant advertising okay he thought wow that's a really impressive you know because at its time it was the kind yeah. of it was the kind of silk cut or benson and hedges of its day it was really really Film innovative noir, it looked very Film moody. Noir, yeah. moody shot and jeremy says no no no. lots and lots of people bought it they only bought it once because it was a disgusting cigarette i think okay. it was wills was it and there were claims that it was basically cobbled together from the, you know, the, the factory floor. <laughs> but apparently it was a very unpleasant tasting cigarette, so nobody bought it more than once. Now, interestingly, you see, it's a bad idea to do good advertising for a product that people only buy once. Yeah. Unless you're in a category where people only buy once because that's how often you buy it. Pensions, uh, funeral plans. Be very wary about advertising there because they've only got to con you once. Okay, If you advertise shampoo and it makes your hair turn pink. Well, of course, that may be a plus. <laughs> but if I bought some shampoo and made my yeah. hair turn pink, it would be an utterly foolish thing to do to advertise that shampoo because you will never recoup your costs because negative word of mouth and non-repeat purchase will basically destroy any chance your product have of, of recouping the upfront cost of promotion. Okay. Whereas, uh, if you've got a good product the consumer can reliably infer that the fact that you're investing up front in the expectation of its widespread repeated popularity. As I said, we'll park things like funeral plans. Yes. We'll park things like pensions because they tend to be a one-off purchase. Uh, estate agents, of course, you know, by the time you discover the house is on a floodplain, it's a, <laughs> they've got their commission, you know. But in anything... By the way, this is very important in flowers because... The reason you don't get much fake advertising in flowers, you do, orchids are quite yes. often fake advertisers, but orchids, the, the deception only works at the very beginning of the season, which may explain why orchids are rare. The bees get wise and they go, don't go back to that one, it's claiming to have nectar, but it's a liar. Okay, but in most of the cases, it's only worth investing in petals if the bees visit you more than once. So it is biology and Darwinism that sort of, you know, applies here. Now, my contention is that if bees, which, you know, fascinating things though they are, you know, if bees can essentially work out this thing, it wouldn't be impossible that, to borrow Robin White's phrase, I think he uses the phrase, the reputation reflex, it wouldn't be impossible that humans have evolved something similar, which is, the, the, because if you think about it, the ability to, to differentiate between someone who's lying and someone who is reliably telling the truth is of enormous value in evolutionary terms. And the fact that we might have evolved an instinct for credible communication, which partly actually factors in not only what the message is, but the cost of making it, 
or the effort entailed in making it. Uh, that doesn't strike me as remotely unlikely that humans have a kind of instinct around reputation, which is what has this person got to lose if they're lying? So I'm fascinated by D2C as these new brands are, you know, using social media, growing very quickly to a relatively small size like bonsai brands. But I guess you know, some of the ways that you're using Instagram in a certain way that looks part of their you know, social media, if there was something wrong with that product, your friends would have told you about it, you'd hear back from it from there. So there's a little bit of that happening in there. Yes. A smaller level, I guess, isn't there? No, no, and actually social proof. I mean, uh, you know, if you've got 27 friends who like this brand. Yes. Um, that's not, that would be a natural instinct that humans would, broadly speaking, say, someone has certainly got more to lose by recommending a dud product to their friend. Yes. You've got to have a certain degree of confidence in something before you, you know, a restaurant, for example, before you recommend it to a friend. With a classic member get member, your classic direct marketing again, you know, that only works when you've oh, no. got a lot of happy customers. No, patently, yeah. I mean, if, if people were indifferent uh, or, you know, or indeed embarrassed by their association with your brand, they're not going to do that. No. Um, I mean, no, no. I mean, I think there, there are, you know, there are multiple techniques, but one part of advertising to me seems to work precisely through its inefficiency and therefore if you're not careful you're reducing the conviction people feel in advertising by making it more efficient because you could be by efficient advertising if you think about it people who are very very efficient advertisers are con men in many cases you know you pick off your your, your yes. victim yeah you identify your sucker and then you go in with a very hard concentrated sale there's, there's a wider question which no one looks at as well because i think people believe in the efficient market hypothesis okay i noticed something very weird which is my daughters kept asking me to go and buy them replacement tights for school okay and I said, okay, I'm sick of this. Why do you keep asking me if they, they, they ladder or something? Yeah. Okay. So I said, well, let's try buying some really expensive tights and seeing if they actually pay for themselves. So I went online and looked for Walford, something yes. or other, whatever, whatever thing it is. Okay. Now, the extraordinary thing was I got advertising for this category for about the next three bloody months. And it suddenly occurred to me it's an insanely high margin category, right? Now, here's the question, okay, if you're Unilever or you're selling breakfast cereal where the margins are fairly small and you have to compete for attention, this is the problem that bedeviled direct mail, yes. if you think about it. It was, now, direct mail was a different case because you didn't actually have an auction. It was the cost of a stamp. But if you're competing for attention and you know 50 things about me, one of which is I like a particular breakfast cereal, Okay. Yeah. And the other thing is that I buy premium tights for my daughter. And the third thing is I'm in the market for, um, uh, you know, health insurance or something. Yeah. Again, financial products have stupid margins generally. Okay. Then anybody with a lower margin product, by definition, is overpaying for my attention. So, how, because the problem that always happened in direct marketing is that it was overwhelmingly dominated by a few categories. Now maybe that's the case with maybe that's the case with digital advertising. It's a wonderful way of promoting certain categories. If you're a mobile phone network, okay, yeah. where it's an annual contract. If you're Harry's razors, okay, or your um, what's the other razor one? 
Um, a dollar shave club. club. Okay. Yeah. If you're a subscription product, if you're a product where one click or decision now, actually, funnily enough, I subscribed for Australian underpants recently. There's some weird <laughs> guy in Queensland who's producing Nobby's underpants. <laughs> and I actually thought, actually, having a pair of pants arrive once every two months from Australia, yeah. kind of interesting. Okay. Now, it's worth him spending quite a lot of money to attract me as a customer because my. Uh, first of all, my loyalty will be very, very high by dint of it being a subscription. Something that doesn't happen with something I buy in a shop. But also, my likely lifetime value is going to be reasonably high because there's a minimum length to the contract yeah. I've signed. Now, I mean, it's, it's, it, there seems to me a bit of a problem arising there, which is that at no level can digital advertising priced and distributed as it currently is be actually equally useful to all parts of the uh, of the property market might be yeah. hugely valuable okay um uh so by if that if i'm right in saying that that actually digital advertising will always be more valuable than some people than another then worthwhile moments of attention will always be more worthwhile to certain categories of goods or services than others, which means that some advertisers should not use it. Yeah, I, I think I'd agree with that. There's two things in there, I think. One is the cost of um, taking part in that auction, if you don't click on it, is zero. True. So we have this other thing missing measure. If you can measure, I'm pissing somebody off, showing him the ad for Walford tights, but hey, it's not costing me any money, so so what? You know, so people aren't thinking through the reputational issue of that from there. We'll keep doing that. I think the other thing is that some, the, the, the marketplace has moved towards, I want Rory Sutherland as cheaply as possible. So I can reach him in the FT, which is quite expensive. When I reach him when he's looking at um, somewhere, you know, on Yahoo Mail, he's much cheaper, so I'll put my ad there. When your, your behaviour is very different, the context is very the different. The context is completely different yeah. because, and I would also argue that it is weird that media owners have allowed that to happen. And it is arguably immoral that you do that, okay? So the value of a medium was always convening power. Yeah. We can get a homogeneous group of people of value to advertisers in one place in a way that the advertiser cannot do on his own yes. by the provision of high-value content, right? And the advertiser will therefore, once we have convened this audience in the Daily Telegraph, the advertiser will therefore pay the Daily Telegraph for assembling that audience in the first place. Now, if you can simply hang around outside waitresses, as it were, and mug people off as they come out, right, that's fundamentally breaking some sort of... No, so how on earth... OK, now, interestingly, there's a guy at um, Mozilla Foundation called um, Don Marty. And one of the things they're looking at with new browser software is essentially saying, if you want to reach Telegraph readers, you pay the Telegraph to reach them. Yes. The fact that I'm a Telegraph reader is, to some extent, to the credit of the Telegraph, okay? And moreover, you don't want your advertisements to Telegraph readers to go to them when they're reading totally inappropriate content, in some cases content that may be deleterious to your brand image. But secondly also, the value of that advertisement and its credibility was partly derived from the fact that the Telegraph allowed it to appear where it did, okay? Now, I always have this. I remember when I worked with you, actually. It might have been, I'm pretty sure that was it. I always wanted to find this answer out, which is if you wanted an ad for incontinence pants to appear in the second page of Vogue, how much would you have to pay? 
No money would have bought. No, that. I was thought. Okay, I said try asking a million because then they would have. Someone would have rung Cy Newhouse, wouldn't they? And said, Cy, <laughs> they're offering a million dollars for a page to put incontinence pants in page three of Vogue. But actually, Cy would have said it's tempting, but we're not going to do it. Right. So I once put a Tesco ad. So when Tesco was really doing food ads, we put it into Vogue, into the eating section of Vogue. It's a really beautifully shot ad about Alfresco and whatever. We try to position Tesco that jolly good <laughs> of course, yeah. But, you know, the ad is in the back of the magazine because the front is for Chanel and Gucci and Prada, etc. from there. So that context is so they wouldn't put it. they wouldn't put it in the front no. half of the magazine? But you, no. if you flick through the back of the magazine, you'll find the P&G ad for shampoo would be there, but it'd be on page 87, left yep. hand in the back of the thing from there. <laughs> I've always wanted to try that because the curation that the person does yeah. and the fact that they accept the advertisement and consider it worthy of display yeah. uh, is part of the value add by the media owner. The convening of the homogeneous audience in an atmosphere which is conducive to the sale of what you offer is it's not just space you're selling. It's a whole bunch of intangibles as well, OK? But you're so, so right, Ray. But if you go by the papers today, or any of the papers, you open up, it's full of ads that you've heard of, your mum's heard of, that everyone's heard of, they're famous brands. Mm. You go to the website or the mobile site of the same Any old paper, crap will appear. And they're not there. No. So which media genius thought, I've got to reach Telegraph readers, but only the ones who buy the newspaper, those with an iPhone, will just ignore them. And you've got a breakdown. One, you shouldn't <coughs> sell them separately, I don't think. But maybe that wasn't <laughs> how, how, how is that okay? So how is that business where you affect... Because, okay, there is a famous case where a casino used to go to a rival casino uh, and it would write down the registration numbers of people in the car park, right? Yeah. It would go to a bent cop who would access the police number yeah. database. It would therefore get their name and addresses and give them really generous offers to gamble somewhere else, right? Now, it's, I think most people would argue that's completely unethical practice. Yeah. You, know, you can't stop someone taking a 48-sheet you know, poster, you know. But I would say that the, the stealing of someone else's customer relationship in that explicit way is a bit dubious. But he's an observer and you think, I'm saying, OK, so here's Rory. He's seen him on the, we bought him out of the Guardian. We saw Rory was there. So he's got Rory's a Guardian reader. I'm not going to pay the Guardian any more for that. I'll look out for him on... You know, Yahoo or eBay, or whatever. It's equivalent of you know, people just come around knocking our door. Don't buy businessmen through newspapers. You can buy them in the gents' toilets at the M6 service station. Yes. Yeah. And so yes, it's the same audience. The context is a little bit different from that. There's the some there's certain things which are probably brilliant to sell yes. the gents' toilets. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure there are. There was a fantastic ad actually uh, for Don't Drink and Drive which was above the gents' toilets, which said, if this is the second time you've been here this evening, you should probably get a taxi. So now, that's a brilliant piece of use of gents' toilets, OK? But that, but that but, the creative knew where the media was going to go, exactly, and the media yeah. knew what the critics were going to say, and that, you know, that's a disconnect now. So you've got to talk to someone about, you know, you're buying the media, fantastic. Who's doing the creative? Oh, we've got some guy in Albania who's doing it cheaply. You know. So the talent in our industry doesn't get to look at these guys. No, so the extraordinary thing is that I've said, you know, the amount of money that your typical client is spending on a Martech stack, okay, for 5% of that money, they could have hired David Abbott for his entire working life. Right? Yes. Okay. Now, the extent to which people are happy working on stuff which appears to be mathematical... And their discomfort—they have—they have an intense discomfort in spending money trying to optimize the alchemical part of the equation, the bit where you genuinely create magic by saying, um, uh, for you know, have Sky—I mean, have Sky for fifty percent of the price of a newspaper, you know, you know. Yeah. In other words, that's not a. No, 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 I'm being a bit Don Draper here. That is not a great creative ad. But but the value of reframing something in that way 
you know, it's very, you know, it's it's, yeah. it's advertising 101, it's, you know. But nonetheless, it's worth experimenting with. If you can find an even better creative way of saying it, fantastic. But no one seems to be looking at that possibility at all. I think it's changing a bit. We talked about Google doing that now. We have this conversation, you know, so we've got all these targeting possibilities. Why are you listening to me five banner ads? Oh, well, that's all the budget plays. I, I, will, I also think that I also think the media agencies played a fucking blinder, screwing over creative agencies. Really, a part of it was out of revenge, I think, because they felt they'd been ill-treated, probably rightly, in the past. Okay. Um, now, in fairness, I worked in direct marketing, where the relationship between creative and, and targeting was hugely mutual and respectful simply because if you didn't have a good targeting or media person to work with the chances are your best ideas wouldn't run yeah and so there was always a trade-off which is okay that's a beautiful creative solution but unfortunately it only works to six people so we do need a slightly larger audience and so there was that kind of symbiotic relationship i think the i think there was an element where media people and they do a very clever thing which i was noticed they always love to use the phrase the creative agency because the creative it's like dog whistle okay <laughs> the creative agency is full of people who love being called creative and when they hear themselves described as the creative agency they roll over on their backs and wave their little <laughs> paws in the air Me Meanwhile, what the client hears is this bunch of wacky fruitcakes who wouldn't know P&L if it hit them in the face. So it's a brilliant way of actually uh, uh, flattering the people to their face while actually subtly degrading them in the eyes of your client. And what's happened from there is the idea, the old sort of muscle memory that if you put yeah, 10% this... of your budget into production was quite good. That's been dropped down and down and down and down. Well, it's a very interesting one because... You might argue that if you don't have a visibly expensive medium, if you believe in costly signalling, you should compensate with visibly expensive something else. Yes. Okay. So in the way that, you know, um, wedding invitations, okay. Well, I always joke about this. What there was actually a friend of mine, I always used to tell the joke, a friend of mine did actually get a, a wedding invitation where it had actually gone through the franking machine at work, <laughs> which I was thinking, you know, it's kind of like, okay, how serious are you about inviting me to your wedding when you can't even buy a stamp, right? <laughs> but, but you know, in a sense, okay, it only costs, you know, 66p to post yeah. it, but the paper, the card, all that embossing stuff, what you might call the sort of, yeah, you know, the costly signaling. Or, as I said, a creative idea, by the way. This is a really, really important point, OK? So let's imagine that the credibility of an advertisement consists in part of in the cost of its creation, OK? Yeah. Or transmission. Now, it's mentioned in my book. I was working with Steve Barton, very good account okay. man. And we had to do this thing for Microsoft, and the purpose was to get about 300 IT directors to trial Windows NT 32-bit advanced server, I think it was called, okay, which was quite a bit of effort. And we had to convince them that this, was a re this new product was a really, really big deal. And Steve said, what we're really looking for is theatre. We want to do an expensive mail pack, right? And he said, I want you to come up with a great award-winning, fantastic, luscious, over-the-top idea to promote this product. Because the fact that we're spending money on it, A, says it's only going to a small number of people. Because you wouldn't, you even Microsoft at that time wouldn't have sent a £20 pack to a million people, right? Um, uh, secondly, it says this product is of enormous importance because we're spending money telling you about it. And he said a very clever thing as, a, as an aside. He said, come up with a brilliant creative idea. If you can't come up with a brilliant creative idea, write a really, really nice letter and we'll send it to them by FedEx. Right. 
Now, if you think about it, you either have elaborate creative delivered by Royal Mail or you have simple creative delivered by FedEx. And that's just as a kind of multiplier there, which is if you can't do an expensive medium, you should do an expensive treatment. Now, yeah. that might be the use of a celebrity. It might be fantastic production values. It might be sheer creative ingenuity. So the example I always give is, OK, if you've got two wedding invitations and they both contain the same information, the parents of Mr. You know, yeah. Mr. Blah, 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 invite you to the wedding of their, what is it, their daughter, blah, 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 blah. OK. Uh, OK. Now, if that information arrives by email, it's a slight less of a kind of three-line whip than if it arrives on embossed card with gold edges. It's American Psycho business card conversation. Oh, sorry, yeah. this is, yeah, exactly, exactly. The, how, how beautiful is the font and what card is it made? And what, what's, the, what's the card made? What's the yeah. GSM, you know? Now, someone said, OK, what happens if you haven't got much money and you want, you want your wedding to seem important? Well, that's no problem. You have to use something else that's costly and in scarce supply, of which money is only one thing. Two other things might be effort or talent. Okay. Now, if, for example, you were a skint but highly talented guitarist and you wrote a song inviting people to your wedding that yeah. was quite a good song, well, you have to have a reasonable degree of talent, okay? I would not attempt this. <laughs> and you either. posted it to YouTube and you emailed people a link to your song. That would be a great winning invitation. Yes. I'd feel an obligation to go to that wedding, okay? Equally, you can do something uncreative, which is the parents of their daughter Luella, blah, 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 blah. And you can send it through first class post, not second class, you know, gilt envelope, bit of ribbon, yes. uh, tissue paper lining to the envelope, because you've spunked a lot of money on this one. And then there are other solutions, you know, there's user celebrity because patently, you know, Robert De Niro doesn't turn up for free. Yes. Um, but at some level, and bees do this, you know, they signal the desirability of a, of a newfound area of flowers uh, by dancing for longer. Requires more effort. Right. Proof of sincerity. Okay. Now, arguably, I would say that when you do something digital, uh, Don Marty has a fascinating idea, which is he said, the way I'd restore the front page, the first double page spread of Vogue online is I'd buy Twitter and accept the fact that there is only one ad a day on Twitter yes. and it costs you $50 million if you want to place that ad. Okay? No other advertising on Twitter at all, but when you go onto Twitter for the first time in any given calendar day, you're going to get served that ad and you know someone spent $50 million doing it. Super Bowl, basically. Okay. Now, um, in the same way, I think the problem is, is by trying to make it efficient in every dimension, this is an advertisement delivered to very few people, efficient, at very low cost, efficient, using no creative effort, efficient, and with the minimum of, of thought or craftsmanship or effort deployed, efficient. You haven't produced a brilliant ad, you've no. actually produced a terrible ad. Because your brain's trained to look for things that are unexceptional and, and ignore I, them. And as a creative person, I used to be wrong about this, by the way, mea culpa, because we all have self-interest. I used to think the creative content was important and the craftsmanship and the typography. And I was going, you know, when, when you work with an art director, you go, what's he tossing on about the kerning <laughs> for? Who the hell cares about that? Actually, the consumer. Yes. David Ogilvy was wrong there. David Ogilvy was very rarely wrong, but one of the things he said is, you know, uh, he always imagined two housewives on a bus saying, I, you know, I, I, I would have bought that product, but they set the headline in Futura Bold. Now, I think he was wrong there because actually you do notice something about the... If you, I, I worked with Steve Dunn for a time and those Guardian ads, which had that, you know, the massive capital in the yes, middle. With, yes. I mean, geez, OK, I mean... You're a newspaper. You want to show that you genuinely care about your output in every respect. 
there was there was a degree of kind of love, thought, and attention that was put into their Lagos Delaney presses at their best, which it kind of made me too mess, you know. (laughs) And actually, that was where David Ogle was wrong, you know. Actually, a not-bad headline, beautifully set, still makes it a better ad. And Comic Sans looks cheap to everybody now, doesn't it? Yeah, although (laughs) there's a very interesting thing. There is a thing called counter-signalling. Um, which is where you deliberately don't bother. I mean, Hal Henry did a few counter-signalling ads, didn't they? Yeah. Citrus Spring. Do you remember that? Which just had a picture of their client locked off, shot on video, saying, uh, uh, do you remember this? I went to see my advertising agency to ask them to do a campaign uh, uh, for new Citrus Spring. They said, that's great. We'll need a three-week shoot in a flute plantation in the Bahamas and uh, something else. And I said, will you tell them that it's made out of spring water? They said, if you're going to be clever, Bob, you can do the ad yourself. Now, typical Hal Henry kind of postmodernist stuff. Now, occasionally you can do that. You can do the, you know, that old route of we don't have to, you know, this product's so great, we don't have to care. Very dangerous to do it. The people who do it, by the way, academics, the discovery and uh, sorry the discovery of the higgs boson was actually announced on a slide that partly contained comic sans <laughs> okay. now interestingly academics if you think about it scientists have a horror of presentation skills because the whole point of a science should be that the facts speak for themselves therefore anybody who dresses up their presentation of a communication is to be viewed with suspicion because why would they go to all that effort why would you go to all that effort if they if they were confident in the result you see. So occasionally it's worth remembering, this is one of the the, things I mentioned, that the opposite of a good idea is sometimes a good idea. That occasionally you can go to the other extreme. Um, But but nonetheless, I think that fact that, that efficiency and effectiveness in certain areas of life are actually not natural bedfellows, they're actually contradictions. Well, I think you talk about arithmetic and people who are sort of obsessed with that, and I think there's the world looks at people who do spreadsheets versus PowerPoint in different sort of ways. You know, I've always been a PowerPoint person, and a lot of people, I trust the guy with the spreadsheet because that adds up, and a PowerPoint is just lots of waffles. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the only point I would say is that you might argue that we're, we're we've been very, I mean, there are lots and lots of things, by the way, which the human humanity was very, very slow to discover. Um, the randomised control trial, weirdly. I mean, advertising got there before medicine did. I read that, you were fascinated by that. Yeah. yeah. Um, statistics were an incredibly late addition to mathematics, so probability and statistics came very, very late. Um, and it's worth remembering that the fact that at the moment, okay, there isn't a kind of science of persuasion By the way, I don't think there ever will be. In the same, by the way, there won't be. It won't be the same kind of science as you find in Newtonian physics. Okay, because complex things are inherently different. Okay, the rules are different. You can look for patterns. You can look for kind of. You can codify things. I don't think you're ever going to get to the point where you say, "If this, do that." As I said, one of the first points is that in conventional science, there's a right optimal answer, and I think everything that's happening in advertising is a bunch of people who remember schoolboy science trying to look scientific by making it like schoolboy science. Now, Murray Gelman, who died very recently, who was a Nobel Prize winning physicist uh, who kind of postulated or discovered quarks. Um, after he'd won his Nobel Prize, he kind of devoted the rest of his life to the study of complexity. 
and co-founded the Santa Fe Institute and so on. And he more or less says in this extraordinary interview, he says, I know that in this field, in my lifetime, there's a chance I'm going to make a meaningful discovery because the what we're looking for, i.e. certainty, lack of ambiguity, is just the wrong thing. As I mentioned, you know, you can be a great restaurant because the service is fantastic. Yeah. I think we've had an example of that today. You know, every single thing that people have done here yeah. uh, at... Uh, uh, the Pig at Bridge near Canterbury, <laughs> I'll give them a, a helpful plug, has been absolutely exemplary, OK? But you can also be a successful restaurant by being famously rude. Yes. And the fact that actually reality doesn't map onto perception or behaviour in a neat one-to-one -one way, depending on context, mood, all sorts of framing things, comparison, narrative story, expectation, the same thing can arouse totally different reactions in us. And therefore, by arousing totally different emotional reactions, it will drive completely different behaviours. What that means is that, A, it means that alchemy is possible because you don't have to change the reality. You just have to change the perception. Yes. The same thing can be cheap or expensive depending on what I compare it to or depending on the story I tell. OK. And by the way, with my dad, that really did happen like that. Uh, you know, he just went... Oh. 60p a day, I spend £2 a day on newspapers, I'll be able to watch Nazi megastructures on Discovery, whatever it is. And he's now, I mean, eight years later at 88, he's a huge Sky evangelist. He wouldn't dream of cancelling his subscription, OK? But it required that reframing to get him to actually sign up in the first place. And the fact that actually... Um, that what something is in terms of the behaviour in humans which it gives rise to is as much a product of what you might call noise as of signal and yet we obsess about the signal and actually what you need to do is change the, the noise change the sense. but so it was very interesting Murray Gelman said this because he basically said look you know this isn't this isn't the kind of science where you go um look you know we've measured the you know we've measured the spin value for boron it's three <coughs> It, it's simply something where you can, and I think it's very interesting if you read, for example, Robert Cialdini's books, that the rules, social proof, for example, versus scarcity, in a sense, a lot of Cialdini's six principles are kind of contradictory. And advertising has always been contradictory in the sense that you can say, loads of people buy this, so it must be good. Not many people have this, so it must be good. Yes. You know, and, you know, in, in, in one sense, you know, you're not, out of something so non-linear as that, you're never going to get the kind of scientific certainty that I think the people with the, you know, the, the AI, the algorithms, the uh, computing power and the data, I don't think, because this terrifies me, right, big data, because it all depends on what you have data on and what you don't have data on, yes. right? Now, one, it all comes from the past, okay? Um, and stories over time change. So, I mean, a daughter of a colleague of mine said, uh, Dad, she was wanting to go first flat. Dad, I want to live in Peckham because it's handy for shortage. <laughs> right. Now, if you'd said that in 1988, people yes. would have had you sectioned, basically. Okay, I mean, just the idea of it was fundamentally absurd. But over time, um, I mean, the weird thing is, it, in, in most respects, shortage is just as shitty as it always was, yes. right? Okay, there's graffiti all over the walls, the whole place is run down. But weirdly, because it's a bit like Brooklyn, that thing which 
genuinely, you know, I mean, in 1988, if you if you teleported me into Shoreditch, I would have basically run to the nearest police station. I think, you know, he's now gritty, edgy, cool. Okay. So very early 90s, some friends got into because they'd opened a Vietnamese restaurant in Kingston Road, the first one. Yeah. And I thought, great, we'll go. But there was nowhere in Shoreditch to go for a drink before, and apart from two or three really grotty pubs. No. So imagine in Shoreditch, in a, a mile from where we made that decision, there's now probably 200 pubs. No. pubs. Yeah. And so the whole, because we're, we've, got to, we've got to adapt to a changing and unpredictable environment where we will never have full information in order to make decisions, we've evolved a way of making decisions which... I think looks for reliable cues or heuristics which will help us avoid catastrophe. Okay. Now, the official narrative of what we're trying to do is if it's a mathematical optimization problem, I'm trying to buy the best television I yes. can. I think the evolutionary instinct is whatever happens, I don't want to buy a shit television. Okay. I really, really, really don't want to buy a shit television. Yeah. And if you want to kill a brand, of course, you know, uh, I mean, uh, you know, if, if, if you're thinking of buying a product on Amazon and you read 100 reviews and all of them are glowing and excited and then the review number 97 said it burst into flames, okay, you're not buying that thing, right? Now, uh, eBay, if you take it, you know, we won't buy from people who are 97% reliable, basically, yeah. even if they're selling at half the price. Now, rationally, we should go, well, there's a 97% chance the goods turn up. I'm paying 50% as much money. Ergo... I'm effectively, why on earth would I pay twice as much to increase by 3% the chance that the goods arrive? Yeah. Okay. Well, we do. And there's a reason for that, which I think mathematically is the whole question of ergodicity, the whole question that variance reduction is a natural human instinct for a very good reason, uh, which is that fortune is path dependent and three unlucky things in a row can lead to extinction. Okay. And therefore, my argument is that the, uh, that some maths work being done at the um, London Mathematical Laboratory, combined with some interesting work in kind of evolutionary biology on reciprocal altruism, um, suggests that what we've evolved to do is we use brands not as a way of attaining perfection, but as a reliable means of avoiding disaster. If I buy a Samsung anything, it's going to be pretty good. Okay. Am I paying $200 more than something that's just as good? Probably, but I'm happy to pay that $200 to avoid the 1% chance of total shittiness. It's getting a coffee in an area you don't know. I can go into prep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, mm. Might be really good, might be a bit crap. So I'll go into prep. So McDonald's, I've often said, is the most successful restaurant in the world because it's really good at not being terrible. Yes. And Nassim Taleb mentions this in his book, that there are a load of people in Milan railway station, you know, one of the great food cities of the world, and they're eating at McDonald's. Why? Because they haven't got long enough to find out where to go. And they know that McDonald's will... Well, first of all, they won't get ill, they won't get ripped off, and they won't find the food significantly disappointing. And so once you understand that, it goes back to something, this extraordinary thing that this guy, Joel Raffleson, who's still alive, he was a copywriter with Ogilvy in the 60s. He now lives in Chicago. His wife was also a copywriter at the time. And um, uh, she's one, they're both wonderful as a couple. But he, he said to David Ogilvy, he said, I don't think people buy brand B rather than brand A because they think it's better. I think they buy brand B because they're more certain that it's good. And he was really sort of decades ahead of his time in realising that what humans are trying to do is minimise variance. Um, because if you look at it over the... If you accept the fact that actually uh, your ability to bet tomorrow is contingent on your success at gambling today... 
And likewise, the fact that, you know, a, a run of losses in close succession is much more catastrophic than spaced losses. Yes. Okay. Then a lot of our, the fact that we exhibit loss aversion... Did you ever watch Life is, to Life is Toff? That fantastic series, which there's a totally objectionable, you know, right-wing, even by bystanders guy, called um, uh, Simon Fucker Fulfin. He's, he's not his formal name. I remember him. Incredibly that, yeah. sweary guy. Yeah. And the family, in something like 1250, were given by the king 5,000 acres of land and a house in Devon. And the direct descendant is still there. Okay. So, I mean, it is pretty much, yeah, it's getting on for, it'll be getting on for 800 years of continuous occupation yeah. of the same house. They haven't sold an acre of land. They're, obviously, they've rebuilt the house. Yes. Um, and someone asked him, how do you think you've managed to do this? And, and he said, um, he points up at the ancestral portraits. He goes, oh, terrible, terrible ancestors. He said, I've had alcoholic fuckers. I've had philandering fuckers, gambling fuckers, you know, South Sea bubble fuckers <laughs> who lose all their money. He said, but we've never had two fuckers in a row. <laughs> and the point of that is that if you think about it, that one of the reasons we're cautious is that um, uh, two or three misfortunes hard on their heels... Yeah, you're dead. You're dead. And so what seems to us irrational when we look at a very simple uh, ensemble probability outcome by adding together all the possible outcomes and averaging it isn't an accurate representation of how life is really lived which is you know one chance at a time yes and um, so I, I find this interesting because I think what's happening is that you might argue that marketing is fundamentally wrong about what people are doing when they choose to buy brands that we think we're always trying to emphasize the positive do you remember there was an ad? You'll remember this because we're about the only people old enough in the industry <laughs> to do it. Do you remember there used to be this campaign for Hirondelle, which said, uh, which would show totally implausible or unlikely situations like castles in the air, unicorns, and things. And the line was, "It's about as likely as a dud bottle of Hirondelle." Yes, it was an Austrian wine. It, something like that, wasn't I, it was weird. some sort of weird white yeah. wine, and it was advertised by CDP. I think, I'm pretty sure it was CDP. It was either Lowe's or CDP. And all the people there said, what we're saying in our advertising is that this wine is never dud, it's never shed. Okay. And they always felt totally... They said, it's not really claiming very much, is it? You know, it's not saying it's a good wine, it's just a... Now, actually, looking back on it, bear in mind, of course, this was the 1970s, if I'm right, okay, where people didn't know anything about wine. Wine I mean, was very I, exotic. It was yeah. very exotic. People were terrified of making a mistake. I mean, the worst thing you do is take a dud bottle of wine and something, and then no one would be real, to be honest, because a lot of wine tastes pretty horrible in a weird kind of way. A lot of people were never sure whether wine was dud or not. So this area, some planner had basically said, look, this is all about confidence. It's not about, you know, this is the best wine in the world. It's all about knowing that when you open this bottle, you can all say this is actually wine as it's supposed to taste. The fact that it tastes a bit weird is because it's wine. It's not because it's corked or gone off. And Paul Smith, who worked at the agency at the time, said we always felt that was a totally underselling the product. But I think looking back, particularly if you remember, you know, the market at the time where you had Blue Nun, yeah. Black Tower. Yeah. <laughs> they ought to bring those back, shouldn't they? I worked on a few of those. There should, be a, there should be a NAF wine movement which brings back those things. But th there was Black Tower, Blue Nun, Liebfrau Milk was the thing that yes. everybody knew how to order. Now, 
actually what they were doing was I think really clever I think the, the fact that actually nobody knew what they were doing so at least when you bought a bottle of hirondelle which is what French for swallow is it something like that I think so but at least when you bought a bottle of Herondale, you knew this was how it's supposed to taste. You, were, you weren't committing a huge social gaffe by turning up and saying, hey, have a glass of this, and everybody else going, shit, it tastes like piss. What the hell's this idiot doing? Mr. Catchy, where you do think you'd so I remember the odd bins. They're successful on the fact, you know, you wouldn't have wine at home. You'd buy a bottle on your way to a dinner party. But you go in there, you'd read a little label someone had written, saying written. this is yeah. Oki from the mountains in New, um, southern New Zealand. And you had a story to tell when you turned up with a bottle of wine. Yeah, you had your spiel already, yeah. didn't you? Yeah, no, I've never tried this before. Apparently it's quite oaky. Yeah, no. I mean, that, you're absolutely right. I mean, actually, the whole wine industry is really people buying the licence to bullshit, isn't it, really? I was fascinated. One of your examples in the book um, was about if you've got a bottle of wine you bought for $20, and it's now worth seventy dollars. Yeah. What did it cost you? And people different view about it. It's a oh yeah, yeah, yeah. In other words, when I drink that bottle, do am I? Is it costing me seventy dollars? Because I could sell it at auction for seventy dollars. So undoubtedly, I'm foregoing seventy dollars of utility by drinking the wine rather than selling it. Some people say no, no, it cost me twenty dollars. That's what I paid for it. Some people say twenty dollars plus interest. Um, some people actually say minus fifty dollars. Because I'm having a $70 experience, which I paid $20 for. Now, the interesting thing is the economist would say of the last answer, that is totally wrong. It's a ridiculous yes. thing to say. And yet those people obviously derive the most pleasure from drinking the wine. Yeah, I'm drinking a fantastic From a hedonic thing, you're going, this is fantastic. Not only is it brilliant wine, but I'm basically 50 quid up on the deal. Well, now, because if you think about it, I mean, you know, I mean, it's a really fascinating question, that, because there isn't really a right answer to that, is there? OK, so you bought it for 20 well, but There was a fifth answer as well. I'm just trying to remember. It was $20, $20 plus interest, $70, which is, that's, after yeah. all, what I'm foregoing. I think it's time to call a close there. I think we'll do a part two. But ending mm. on talking about wine seems very good. Um, Roy, that's fantastic. If you buy the book, Alchemy, what the surprising power of ideas that don't make sense, well, lots of those examples are in there. It's really interesting reading. Um, and what we'll do is share it on Fix afterwards, also the reading list of some of the other people you mentioned too. So you can It's a fantastic, by the way, the format of the book is brilliantly Marmite. If you look at the Amazon reviews, most people love it uh, because it's short chapters, it's, you know, it's, it's a repeated anecdote with a few footnotes as gags to keep you amused, OK? Mm -hmm. And there are one or two reviewers on Amazon who go, it drives them absolutely apoplectic because <laughs> they have some weird platonic view of what a book should be like. Well, I think I read it both ways. I started from the work way through and they've been dipping in and out. No, no, but really entirely, well. yeah. But the, um, the, the, the little notes are there are very amusing as well, especially knowing you as well. So, Rory, thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure. Really thank enjoyed you very much that. indeed. Um, and let's do a part two at some point in the future. We'll do a part two anytime you like. Thank Fantastic. You. That's a wrap. That's the end of our full conversation we had with Rory. Parts one and parts two are available, so it's worth listening to the director's cut of the full conversation. Um, really enjoyed talking with Rory and hope you find it really valuable. Thank you.